Good evening. Welcome to Sunday Night Live. It's a tight-knit Sunday Night Live on a night in Michigan, which is good. Uh, pull out your songbooks and turn to number 810. Number 810. I love this song. I think it has such a worshipful tone, and I particularly love the words at the close of the first verse when it talks about, and words cannot express the love we feel, but we long for you to hear. I don't know in your prayer life if you ever have that issue, but there are many times I have things I want to say to God that there just don't seem to be adequate words in my language to express to him. And it seems that no matter how I say it, it doesn't quite, quite communicate what's trying to be brought forth in my inner man. And I think this song expresses that very, very well. How do you explain? How do you describe? A love that goes from east to west and runs as deep as it is wide. Lord, you know all our hopes. Lord, you know all our fears. And words cannot express the love we feel, but we long for you to hear. So listen to our hearts. Hear our spirits sing a song of grace that flows from those you have redeemed. And we will use the words we know to tell you what an awesome God you are. But words are not enough to tell you of our love. So listen to our hearts. If words could fall like rain from these lips of mine, and if I had a thousand years, Lord, I would still run out of time. But if you listen to our hearts, every beat will say, thank you for the life, thank you for the truth, and thank you for the way. So listen to our hearts, hear our spirits sing, a song of praise that flows from those you have redeemed. And we will use the words we know to tell you what an awesome God you are. And words are not enough to tell you of our love. So listen to our hearts. So listen to our hearts. Hear our spirits sing a song of praise that flows from those you have redeemed. And we will use the words we know to tell you what an awesome God you are. But words are not enough to tell you of our love. So listen to our hearts. 
as somebody who communicates for a living, I can't wait to the day when I'll really be able to communicate everything I really want to say in ways that cannot be misunderstood. What a glorious day of reunion that will be. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Tonight is the second of a two-parter. It was unintentional, not meant to be a two-part lesson, but we got caught up in the illustration that I introduced this section with because it has to do with the entire theme and concept of the book of 1 Peter as he writes to them as pilgrims, strangers, foreigners. And that's what we are. This tragedy that took place in that church, and I've driven right by that congregation. I preached in Texas for a number of years, and I remember it's right there on the highway. You can see it from the interstate in Fort Worth, Texas. And what a tragic, tragic world we live in, where even in the, the sanctity of the Lord's church, that during the communion itself, that something so terrible could happen. And we're just grateful that more weren't hurt, but... Yet, you know, it's really, we're kind of callous to it now, aren't we? Because you just hear about it all the time. This world, we live in a world that's gone crazy because that's what sin does. It drives men mad. It, it drives people out of their right minds, what God intended them to be, and it continued us to do and to serve Him in our lives. And and so sin, it shouldn't surprise us that a corrupt world has corrupt, terrible, evil things that happen. And we have been put here. We are here, and we are not welcome. I mean, that's the truth. We are not welcome. I mean, yes, the, the world may tolerate God's people. And yes, in this country, we've had this kind of unique, an anomalous experience in the human you know, experiment where in this country for the last couple hundred years, religious people have had somewhat of a sense of freedom. And, but that's still in some ways just an illusion. I mean, we live in a democratic republic that some think is more of a dem democracy than a republic. And here's the truth of it. All that has to change is public sentiment. And as much as we love the Constitution, and I love the Constitution, and the ideas of the founders of this country, all that has to change is enough people. You realize anything in the Constitution can be changed. Isn't that right? How is that done? Through a constitutional amendment. It's difficult to do unless everybody wants to. And since God's people will always be a very, 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 very small minority. We live in a world run by evil people, run by the devil. And yes, we have had a unique experience, one that hasn't been promised to us, but was, was a nice respite from the world for a couple hundred years, in this country at least. But the truth is, is we've always been strangers, pilgrims. We've always been living behind enemy lines. I won't go into the illustration again, but I talked a lot about the Battle of Bataan last week. And the terrible things that happened to those men who fought for the United States there during World War II. And how they had to survive as guerrillas behind enemy lines. Sometimes for years. And it was an existence that was day by day. They didn't know if they had it tomorrow. That's kind of our existence, isn't it? We're 
supposed to live by day by day. It was an existence where they had to face the enemy every day and rely upon their brothers. Rely upon their brothers. I don't know if you've heard that expression. I think it was coined by the miniseries years ago called the Band of Brothers. And they say that those who have fought in the trenches together, who have faced death side by side, that those, you know, the band of brothers, and really some of you, if you served in units during war, most units find a way, even if they live 40, 50 years after that, they still meet year after year after year because they can't imagine a life where they didn't get to see their brothers. It's a bond that's so powerful. We are the army of God. We are behind enemy lines. We are under the threat of persecution. We are under the threat of violence every single day. And if it seems that it isn't, it's because it's just an illusion. This is the devil's world. And we're here, but we're here together. Oh, God's people should never fuss. Should never fight, and for sure they should never split. We've been blinded when we have division. So when we look here in this text, he's going to talk in verses 10 through about verse 25 of chapter 1 about what it takes to be able to survive here behind enemy lines, to be able to be pilgrims and strangers in a foreign world. And the first thing we discussed in length last week in verse 13 where he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, rest your hope, fix your hope. Now hope, as we mentioned before, is not the way the world uses the word hope. We can talk about hoping to, for, to win a ball game or hoping to win the lottery. Those, that's not the right use of the word hope. That's the word wish. And it's fine to wish for things, but there is no guarantee in the word wish. But the biblical idea of hope is not this concept that it's something I want to happen and maybe it will happen. No, the biblical word hope is a desire that is backed by an absolute promise of he who cannot break his word. You know, one of the most encouraging texts to me in all the Bible is the text that is the greatest limitation on God, on himself, when it says, God who cannot lie. Not who will not, not who chooses not to. God who cannot lie. Because if God cannot lie, and God told me that I can be more than a conqueror, and nothing can separate me from the love of God, and if he tells me I will be with you always... And then if he tells me that through Christ there is nothing I can't see through and all the other promises, if God cannot lie, then I'll tell you, we have a hope. And we need to fix our mind and our heart on hope. You see, this life is a wilderness. That's what it's described as. And we understand through that shadow language of the Old Testament just like the temple was not really about the temple. It was a physical, literal place. But it was a shadow of greater things to come. Because Jesus, he is the high priest. That wasn't really about an Old Testament high priest. Jesus is our high priest who has went into the holy place. And has 
taken us there through the veil that was representative of the separation between God and man of sin. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. And just like all those Old Testament images reflect a reality now in the greatest age of God's people, in the Christian age, in the age of faith, just as all of that is true, so it is that the promised land they were going to was a physical place. It was a historical place. But it really was about the promised land where we're going. And therefore, to get to that promised land, they had to cross the River Jordan after they'd wandered through the hard part called the wilderness. And it doesn't seem like much of a wilderness in green or white in the middle of winter, Michigan. But I tell you, you are wandering through the wilderness on your way to the promised land. That's what this life is. So he tells us to fix our hope. And the hope is not a wish. It is a desire backed by an absolute promise. Then in verse 15, 14, he says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lusts as in ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all of your conduct. Now, there are two senses in which the word holy is used, especially in regard to the believer. There is a sense in which we are holy only because we've been made holy through his holiness. Second. Corinthians chapter 5, we'll talk about this extensively. And in chapter 5, verse 21, it tells us, it wraps up the scheme of redemption, the plan of God in one verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That tells us the grand exchange God made. That's the way his justice was satisfied. Yet he was able to save those who did not deserve it. He, he, that's why Jesus is a substitutionary atonement. Jesus hung on the cross, pure and free and deserving to live, and took what we deserved so that we now can have what he deserved. He exchanged the paychecks. If the wages of sin is death, then the wages of not sinning is life. Jesus gave us his paycheck and took ours. That's basically a summation of the scheme of redemption. But in that, when he tells us all of these principles about what it means to be holy, you see, there's a sense in which I am holy and you will stand before God. If you live this life and you walk in the light, you will stand before God absolutely holy. But it won't be your own holiness you rely on. It'll be his. So there's that sense, you know, that we have received his righteousness regardless of our wickedness. That we have received his holiness regardless of our debauchery. But yet, there's a second sense in which the Bible uses the word holiness. And that's why it's used here in this way. You notice it says, but he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Now if he just stopped there, then we could assume that it meant we are holy because he's made us holy. But he doesn't stop there. Be ye holy in all of your conduct. In your conduct. The second sense in which holiness is used in Scripture is to challenge us in a certain way to live. You see, we can see examples of this in Scripture. 
where the Apostle Paul will say at the end of Philippians chapter 1, after he has talked and spoken so powerfully about life and death and said, talked about how he's been imprisoned, but yet he's excited because the gospel is preached and that's what matters more than anything. And then he says, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And then he'll go on and say, if I live on in the flesh, it will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two, having desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So he talks about this wrestling within himself that he'd rather go on and be with the Lord. What a maturity in that. What an understanding of what life really is. But then he talks about how he, they need him to remain. And so here's his instruction to them. Only let your lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I'm absent or come to see you again, I may hear of your affairs, that you continue with you all with your steadfastness of faith. Now in that, just think about the gravity of that. The, the Bible describes to us what the gospel is. It means good news. And if you were to go out here in the world and ask folks, what's the gospel? Define the gospel. You'll get all kinds of answers. Most of them will be something like, well, it's the Bible. Well, that has something to do with the gospel, but that's not exactly what the gospel is according to the biblical definition. 1 Corinthians 15 defines the gospel. He says, I want to remind to you the gospel, which you've heard delivered. He says that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried and he was resurrected. The hope. The good news of mankind is what we've just celebrated and we celebrate every single week that Jesus Christ was died and he was buried and he was resurrected. He paid for our sin and he managed death, controlled death. That's the good news. Now with that in mind, think of the gravity of this statement. You live your lives worthy, worthy of the gospel, which means the death, burial, and resurrection Anybody in here think you've attained to that? That your life, this week, how about just today, is worthy, deserving of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to raise my hand. And I never will. But yet that's what I've been instructed to aspire to. And, and as we look at that verse, and then we compare it to what we're told here, be ye holy in your conduct. He's not talking about the credited righteousness that God has given to us because of Jesus. That is a given. That's understood in Scripture. Here he's talking about the ambition of holiness. The desire to live holy. Understanding that it's an impossible dream. That it's an unreachable star. That even though I try to live worthy of the gospel, I'm never going to live one day worthy of the gospel. Are you? But you see, as a child of God, I can strive every day to live today more worthy of the gospel than yesterday. And tomorrow to do that again. And as we strive, Jesus would say, be ye holy as I am holy. Now that can be made so because God has credited us with his holiness. But he's not just talking about that credited holiness. He's talking about the ambition of holiness. 
You know, as I grow older more and more, I think that's probably what Paul was addressing in Romans 6, verse 1, when he says, shall we continue to sin that grace may increase? Now, yes, God's grace covers our sin. And there's no sin too much or too great that his grace isn't big enough to cover it. But the point is, is that people who've been covered by grace, the only responsible, the only reasonable response to grace is gratitude. Never taking advantage of. Gratitude. And in gratitude, people want to do their best to live deserving of that great privilege. That means we are to be a people who strive. Now, we're going to fall. We're going to disappoint. I can't even count the times my prayer has included. Sorry, I disappointed you, Lord. Want to try again? going to do better. It is frustrating when it's like the 800,000th time, right? I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt that way. Lost my temper again, Lord. I, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it again, knowing I'm going to do it again. But I'm going to try not to do it again. You know? You see, that is the ambition of holiness. To live our lives. And he says, if you're going to survive in this world, You've got to be a people who have that as your polar star, as your ambition, who work every day to live your lives worthy of the gospel, who work every day to try to be holy, to walk in the very steps of Jesus. You see, we have been set apart. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in our same text over in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know, usually we talked about how we have been sanctified. What does that mean to be sanctified? It means to be set apart. It means, in essence, to be made special, right? To be made special. You are set apart and you are special. You, you have royal blood. And God's people are the only royal priesthood in all this world. You're special. You've been set apart. But it doesn't tell us there that we need to realize that we're set apart or that we have been set apart. He says we need to set apart. That you have the ability to sanctify things as well, don't you? I mean, you do it all the time. You set things aside. Just the other day, Lenora and I, Lenora went to the grocery store. Seth and I love it when Lenora goes to the grocery store. I mean, that is like, you know... That's like Disneyland does, you know. We go to the refrigerator and there's plenty to eat. Well, but on this particular day, she had a holiday party at school. She was making something for her. And she let us know real quick, the stuff on this shelf, you boys better not touch it. Those items were sanctified, weren't they? What does that mean? Set apart. They were made special. They were set apart. And when they were set apart, we can't touch them. So we have the ability, Miss Lenora does it, I do it, we all do it. We have the ability to set things apart. He tells us there in 1 Peter 3, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Set God apart. You know what that means? Put Him above. Make Him first. Set Him apart. You know, we have to focus on a lot of things. We have to focus on our families. We have to focus on our jobs. We have to focus on, you know, 
So many different things that pull at our attention. But we don't have to focus on it all equally. We can set some things apart. He says, set him apart. And I think that's wrapped into this idea of the pursuit of holiness, the ambition of holiness. He continues on. And he'll tell them in verse 16 and following, chapter 1, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. For if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourself throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Listen to what he says to believers. Conduct yourself here. Where is here? In the foreign world, behind enemy lines, Conduct yourself here with fear. Why? Because a soldier who's fighting a guerrilla war behind enemy lines who isn't afraid doesn't last very long. Correct? Fear is a necessary tool to survival amongst the enemy. Fear of what? Fear of the enemy, yes. But that is not the primary fear that's described here. He says we conduct ourselves here with fear. Fear of God. Now, we don't talk about this a lot. And I don't talk about it a whole lot because I'm big on relationship with God. You've heard, known that over the last four years. I emphasize that all the time. I think that is the highest ambition of every believer is to draw closer to God. Not just in service, but in friendship. But yet, we cannot deny that in Scripture, fear plays a powerful role in who the believer is supposed to be. God is still God. I, I, you know, in Scripture, it talks about that Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. And the word Abba, we don't really have an equivalent English word. Some have said the closest thing would be daddy because it's a, a very familiar, very close word. Now, I have heard one prayer from the front in the church where a young man used the term daddy in speaking to God. And I won't say it's theologically incorrect, but I will say it made me just kind of, you know, do one of these businesses only because I want to make sure let me be very clear. I never felt disrespected when that boy called me by that precious word. Daddy? That's not a disrespectful term, is it? It's a term of endearment. The only thing is you worry, though, that folks will reduce it from being a word that describes and is reverent towards the awesomeness of our God. His awesome nature. You see, we need to always remember that God is God. 
That He is the Creator. That He is the Divine. And at the end of the day, and we try to give all sorts of Christian evidences. I try to go through Scripture and explain rationally why God did what He did. What this means and why this is this way that it is or whatever it may be so that people can understand. But at the end of the day, understand or not understand. Like it or not, I'm going to serve God simply because of the reason that He is God and I am not. At the end of the day, that's just the truth. He's God. And it can be easy for folks caught up in the, you know, the day-by-day routine of religion to forget that we live in fear. Now, there's different types of fear. I think that, and I'm telling you, I worry about young families today because I see families where children have no fear of their parents. And we're going to end up chasing a rabbit, and this is going to be a three-parter, I know, now that we're getting off on this. But I see kids today that have no fear of their parents. And I tell you, you feel free to come talk to Seth after church and ask him if this is true. But nobody, I mean, I don't know of anybody that loves their kids more than I do. I'm sure many, many, many love them equally so. But I love my kids, and I'm proud of them. But there were times they were afraid Seth's looking at me. I mean, here's the thing. There's a, and he's joked about this before. He said, Dad, I just knew I didn't want to flip your switch. Because, you know what, did anybody have that with your parents? You know, the, the switch? You know, you, I don't mean the switch. I mean, if you flip the switch, you get the switch. That's kind of the way it works. But, you know, you, you don't, you, there's a point. At which, in my dad's case, his, his pupils turned into little flames. At least it seemed that way. But I'm telling you, I didn't push my daddy too too far because there was a healthy... Now, here's the thing. My dad would die for me. I know he would. He would give everything he had for me. But he was going to be respected because he was my daddy. And I'll tell you, if, if young families can take one word of advice about the importance of raising children is you need your kids to be afraid of you. I don't mean that they're afraid you're going to abuse them. I mean, kids that have a healthy fear of mom and dad, they don't ever, aren't afraid their mom and dad are going to abuse them. There's a difference between abuse and being an authority and being a disciplinarian. And if you don't know the line, I just don't even see how people don't know the line. Because here's the thing. People discipline because they love their kids. They abuse because they don't. They love themselves. There's a line. But I'm telling you, if your kids don't fear the one sole authority in their life, how are they going to fear the one with the blue lights in the rearview mirror? How are they going to fear the one with the black robe sitting behind the bench with a gavel in his hand? How are they going to fear the one who's sitting in the corner office with the word manager over his name? How are they going to fear the one who is king of kings, lord of lords, God eternal? If they haven't been taught to fear in a healthy way. Fear as in respect. The one authority in their life. I heard about a young lady who went off to college as a freshman. And she went on a date with a senior. And this senior, you know, he was wise to the ways of the world. And sure enough, they ended up off in a place where they were by themselves. And he started, he started the sales pitch. You know what I mean by the sales pitch, right? 
about, you know, don't you like me? And who will know if we, you know, maybe, maybe engage in some things that, that we're not totally comfortable with? Who will know? And the girl said, I'm not, I'm not going down that road. And he said, well, why not? Don't you like me? She said, I like you, but I'm not going that road because, because of my father. To which he said, what, are you afraid he'll hurt you? She said, no, I'm afraid I'll hurt him. See, that's fear. I'm afraid. Not that he'll hurt me. I'm afraid I'll hurt him. That's what it means to live in a healthy fear. Respect. For one who loves us more than himself. And then finally, if we skip down to verse 22, it says, You've purified your soul, truth through the Spirit, and love the brethren with a pure heart. We need to make sure that we love God and love one another. First John will say, Beloved, let us love one another for Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, but he who loves not knows not God, for God is love. You see, we can't go through this life without each other. We are behind enemy lines. We are all each other's God. If we don't rely upon each other, love each other, support each other, be loyal to each other, then how are we to survive in such a world? Well, we finally finished part two. And tonight we'll simply ask you this question. How are you doing behind enemy lines? You face the enemy, you face the world every day. Don't misunderstand. We're not saying that the people who are worldly at your work or in your family or on your street or wherever it may be, we're not saying they're the enemy. They're tools of the enemy, but they're the objective. You know, the objective can be used by the enemy, right? Every piece of ground that every army ever wanted to take from those defending it had all sorts of defensives built. Maybe there were trenches dug. Maybe there were battlements built. Maybe there were barbed wire or machine guns or whatever it may be. But the truth is the enemy was using the very thing that the ones on offense wanted to obtain. God will use people God will want people, but Satan will use people. They're not the enemy, but they will sometimes be used by the enemy. Even though they themselves are the objective. We're going to face it every day. How are you doing besides behind enemy lines? If you want to look to 2020 and you want more holiness, or at least to strive... For more holiness. If you want to rekindle your fear. Healthy fear. Respect for God. If you want to express more love. For your brothers and for the Lord. And say Lord listen to my heart. And give me. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God. Then tonight might be a good time. To come forward as we stand. And as we sing.